Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Good morning, peeps, and welcome to Woke AF Daily with me, your girl, Danielle Moody. This week on Woke AF, we are reflecting on the year of hate, and I've selected some of our interviews over the years to recap. And one of my favorites was my conversation with the author of One Drop, Shifting the Lens on Race, Dr. Yaba Blay. I have followed Yaba for many, many years. And her book, One Drop, really provided deep context to our core understanding of colorism. Now, let me provide you with the Oxford Dictionary definition of colorism. Prejudice or discrimination against individuals with a dark skin tone, typically among people of the same ethnic or racial group. This is according to Wikipedia. Discrimination based on skin color, also known as colorism or shadism, is a form of prejudice and or discrimination in which people who share similar ethnicity traits or perceived race are treated differently based on the social implications that come with the cultural meanings that are attached to skin color. Colorism is a serious issue. It's one that I have seen play out in this country in other countries, in my family's home country of Jamaica. I thought it was really interesting recently when I was kind of going through photos of past prime ministers in Jamaica in particular and realizing that they all had a similar look to them. Super fair skin, right? Very, very fair skin. Uh, Their hair texture uh, would be very similar to those of white people. 
And they've always been in charge of an island that is largely filled with people whose skin tone look like mine. And what does that say, right? How do we absorb that? And what it is said is that white supremacy is a hell of a fucking drug. That regardless of if you grew up, right, in a country, in a place that there was an overwhelming presence of darker skinned people, that sadly you could not say that you were unaffected by white supremacy. My sister, as she was traveling around uh, Asia, would tell me that she would never pick up skincare products, whether it be something as simple as a lotion or a body wash, and bring it home. That everything that she would use, right, when she was living abroad, would be from the United States. I'd say, why? Because of the bleaching elements. You see, in many countries, including many on the continent of Africa, bleaching is a common practice where you either use different skincare products or actually just dip yourself in pure fucking bleach so that you can get lighter. Because the crime of white supremacy has meant that the closer you are to whiteness, the better you are. It doesn't matter if you are dipping yourself in a toxin that could destroy your skin, cause cancer, blindness, severe rashes, bleeding. That the desire to be fairer skin outweighs the pain. The pain of what it would mean to exist in a darker skinned body. Think about that. My sister would tell me that particularly in Asia, in the hotter temperature months, that you would see people completely covered, wearing gloves, carrying parasols, because the idea of your skin not resembling that of porcelain was problematic. Why? Because of the toxicity of white supremacy. Because of the export that has been done from European nations and America that sends images and videos of the blue-eyed, blonde-haired, fair-skinned people who live these wonderful lives and are wealthy and are adored and are considered attractive, whose characteristics, whose physical characteristics are used as yardsticks for the rest of the world, which is majority people of color, to measure themselves against. It's why during the Jim Crow era and time, 
We had something in the United States called the paper, the brown paper bag test, which is that if your skin was lighter than a brown paper bag, then you were accepted. You were welcomed in to certain places. If it was not, you might as well be trash on a curb. It's why Dr. Yaba Blay had started a social media campaign that spawned into so much more called Pretty Period. And she asked me many years ago if I would participate as a darker-skinned woman that we had always been told, and it had been perceived to be a compliment, that you are pretty for a dark-skinned girl. And her concept of you are pretty, period, full stop, was to be a campaign that would empower darker skin women and girls throughout the diaspora. You know, it pains me sometimes. <sighs> when I recognize just how pervasive white supremacy is, just how, you know, you want to talk about a pandemic of COVID-19, and yet we don't talk about the pandemic of white supremacy and how it has spread around the world as a virus, has infected every industry, every space, every piece of policy, and legislation that we have in this country has been dictated by whether or not we should give a damn, whether we should extend empathy is based on people's skin. There is a meme that has gone around for so long with the family guy and you hold up the piece of paper that shows the gradations of whiteness and then it moves into olive and then finally darker skin tones and it dictates to you based on the gradation whether or not you should be considered a terrorist or a lone wolf or somebody with mental illness. You see, those memes exist because it's reality. It's reality when you walk down the street, when you go and try and, you know, go into a store, how you are looked at, how you are perceived. Doesn't matter how clean you are or how pressed your clothes are. It isn't the content of your character. It isn't the amount of degrees. It's about the depths of your melanin. And what's sad is that in every country that you go into, you understand their relationship to colorism based on who's in charge. Who gets to pull the levers of power? I remember being in India, traveling in India so many years ago, and Part of my family uh, immigrated from Calcutta, India, to Jamaica. So I have lineage uh, that is Indian. And I had never 
felt so different, so othered. And imagine this, I'm from fucking America. Then when I was in India, it was wild to me. People were staring and pointing, right? Because I was so dark. But what was wild is that there were people who were doing that that were darker than me. Right? You see, what we get exported from India and Bollywood with regard to what it looks like to be Indian is the, you know, the Pramila Jayapals, right? The, um, the, the, the Priyanka Chopras, right? The fairer skinned, long hair people. When in fact, they have every color, every depth of melanin that you can imagine. But based on their caste system and based on their worthiness, that if you are a darker skinned person, you are just less desirable. And why is that? Oh, well, because the British ruled them for so goddamn long. You know, I often wonder, and if I was like a, you know, like a director or a screenwriter, I still want to see a genre of sci-fi that would tackle what the world would look like if white supremacy hadn't grabbed it and strangled it and had hold over the globe for so many years, thousands of years, right? I, I wonder what we would look like, how we would be, how we would tolerate, accept, love people, or if we would then, because of human nature, just look for another way to other people to isolate them. But this conversation that I have with Dr. Yaba Blay about colorism really delves into the depths of what still needs to be unpacked about white supremacy and about racism and how it is internalized, right? You know, you have people, these quote unquote black Republicans or Latinx Republicans that believe that their proximity to whiteness, even if they actually look like me, their proximity to whiteness will somehow save them. And the reality is, is that in a crowd, in a mob, they gonna look the same as me. So it's wild to believe that either the physical shifting of your skin or your ideology will allow you to access something that the white world has never wanted you to access, which is true liberty and freedom, which is to break outside of our global caste system that is designed by the depth of your melanin. What would it mean to live outside of that box, to live outside of that distortion? to have not contracted the virus of white supremacy and internalized colorism. 
The conversation coming up next with Dr. Yaba Blay will help to provide some perspective and insight into how we deal with, how we talk about, and how we deconstruct colorism. Folks, I'm always so excited and honored when I get to bring uh, some folks that I follow, friends, colleagues, back to Woke AF. And uh, if you've been following me for a long time, you've heard me have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Yaba Blay. You know her as an academic, the founder of Professional Black Girl on Instagram, the author of the award-winning book, One Drop, uh, Putting a Lens on Race, uh, a doctor that covers colorism, white supremacy, anti-blackness, and basically everything that upsets our souls as black people. Dr. Yaba Blay, welcome back to Woke AF Daily. Thank you, darling. Good to be here. This month, uh, the, the world seems shocked uh, once again with the understanding that white supremacy exists and is a thing. And it doesn't matter if you are a princess, if you are the greatest athlete of all time. I'm talking about Serena Williams. It doesn't matter if you're a Beyonce. It doesn't matter what heights you have achieved White supremacy will find its way to try and pull you down. Um, I wanted to get your initial reactions to the media's response to the Meghan Markle and Oprah Winfrey and Harry interview and the understanding that someone, right, in the in the royal family um, was commenting on her unborn child, Archie at the time, wondering how dark he was going to be. And all of the things that happened following that, the loss of security, literal protection for her, uh, for her child, um, for herself, and essentially being thrown to the wolves in, in the UK. What were your reactions to that story? Um, I had quite a few reactions. I'm constantly trying to um, reground myself and and withhold judgment and annoyance uh, with the rest of the world because I I continually remind myself that these aren't average conversations that everybody has all the time. And so I'm privileged in that I'm surrounded by some very dope and brilliant folks. You know, we have challenging conversations regularly, but the average person does not. I watched that interview uh, with my 78-year-old Ghanaian mother, um, who has long been fascinated by the magical world of the royals. So Princess Diana was her girl, you know, and I know she was front and center watching uh, Harry and Meghan's wedding, as was much of the world. And so we watched the interview together. Of course, she wasn't going to miss that. And so there's that moment when Megan reveals that there were questions about Archie's complexion and, you know, what's now been memed over and over again, Oprah's response that, right. My mom had a very similar reaction and I just looked at her and I'm like, mom, like who colonized Ghana? Right. And Mm -hmm. like, you know, you're right. You're right. Same people. And they don't have to change. And so for me, the kind of frustration, I almost feel like, like are, are, are we gaslighting ourselves? You know, and so there are a couple things perhaps that are happening, I think from an American perspective, right? The idea that we are surprised may be connected to our limited vantage, vantage point mm-hmm. on what the UK is or who the UK is for 
folks who haven't had the opportunity to travel or don't know, know folks who live there or whatever, right? Whatever we know about the UK is what the media has given us. And I think for many Americans, we have, like my mother, been, you know, um, swept off of our feet by the whole idea of a royal family and a crown and all of those kinds of like magical images that we get and not as much familiarity with what it means to be Black in that space, right? Mm-hmm. Experience of Blackness in that space. Um, and so the surprise, I, I don't know, in general, I, I wonder why we're surprised. Like, are we gaslighting ourselves, right? Why would, I'm, I was surprised, A, that Harry was allowed to marry her in the first place. That was, that was, my, that was my initial shock. So maybe that's that's why folks are surprised. Maybe they assume that if he was allowed, and I'm using that language very deliberately, if he was allowed to marry Meghan Markle, that perhaps um, the royal family or the UK was more liberal than they actually are. Maybe that's where the surprise comes from. But I tried to stay offline a little bit the next day because I already knew it was going to be, you know, a shit show in terms of all of the conversations around it. But I think it's that surprise, the shock um, that was most annoying to me. Because again, in the same way that I asked my mom, it's like, what is it that we know about the UK? Like, I'm not a historian, but I'm so very, very aware of how important history is to my work, to providing context, to the work that I do and the work that so many people do and want to do around anti-racism. If you attempt to have a conversation about anti-racism that starts with George Floyd's murder, that starts in 2020, problem, right? Yeah, yeah. History to ground you, right? To have an understanding of how we got here in the first place. So what is it that you need to know about global history to understand what that crown represents, mm-hmm. right? Where does the jewels in the crown come from? Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Like, if you're clear about that history, you should absolutely not be surprised that there are conversations about this child's complexion because as far as they're concerned, Meghan Markle and I are the same complexion. I, you know, it, it was one of the, one t- tweet that I saw that said, and it was a, it was a, it was a, a black woman who, who, who tweeted it. And I would say that she's in the realm of, you know, uh, of darker chocolate. Right. And she was like, if Megan looked like me, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. So when you talk about the allowed, right. The, you know, being allowed, it was, it was somebody who wrote, and I'm so upset that I can't remember. They're like, colorism is what allowed Meghan Markle to marry into that family. And colorism is what had her flee the country. And so I want you, for, 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 for the audience, to unpack that sentiment of what that means. Because it hit me. And I was just like, you're absolutely goddamn right. I think that it was something to the extent that, yes, colorism is what allowed her to marry in. White supremacy is what kicked her out. Yeah, yeah, yep. So in speaking of colorism, right, we were talking about the hierarchical perceptions of and the value associated with skin color. And what's important to me, oftentimes when people talk about colorism, we talk about it like it is an, uh, 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 what am I trying to say? An internal issue. Like this Mm -hmm. is what 
we black people and so-called people of color do to ourselves. I don't ever want to um, disconnect colorism from white supremacy. Colorism yep. is a symptom of white supremacy, right? Colorism is how we internalize white supremacy. If white supremacy is an ideology, is an institution, um, is a way of, 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 you know, a lens on the world, if you will, that situates whiteness as, I mean, the language says supreme. And again, when I say white supremacy, people get uncomfortable because they are conflating white supremacy with white supremacists, meaning you're only thinking of the Klan. You're only thinking right. of rhetoric flags, right? I'm talking about white supremacy as a historical ideology and institution that gives us valuations of human value. And those valuations are based on a hierarchy that puts supreme value, ultimate value, highest value in white bodies, in white histories, in white experience, in whiteness, right? Much of the history of the world mm -hmm. has operated from this space. Why is it then that it was European countries that colonized African countries and the rest of the world. Why is it now that Europe still has colonies? Mm -hmm. Language is important. Why should Europe be in power? Why should Africa be controlled by external sources, external nations, right? This ideology, again, that puts highest value on whiteness. Mm-hmm. Colorism, because I, I, I'm a visual person, so imagine a hierarchy of mm -hmm. spectrum, with whiteness at the top, blackness at the bottom, various, we got, we, got, we got a spectrum in between. Colorism essentially says that, okay, if we're dealing with people of color, those who are closest to whiteness have more value. Yep. Right? So colorism, to say that colorism is what got her in, to the palace is to say that her complexion, her physical mm -hmm. appearance, right? The average non-discerning person, had we not seen her mother, had we not known her background, she could quote unquote pass. Yes. Meaning very easily could she have been mistaken for white. Think mm -hmm. about it. When you think about whiteness as an identity, the, the, those gates have, have, have opened differently over time, meaning that Jews, for example, weren't always considered white. Italians weren't always considered white. Irish weren't always considered white. In the work that I do on, on hair politics, I know that it wasn't a black woman who invented the straightening comb, it was a Jewish man. Why? Because that investment in a particular uh, embodiment of whiteness that says blonde hair, blue eyes, dare we say, or at the very least, right, white skin and straight hair. People use pejorative language like Jewfro, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Folks from certain regions of the world having a different texture hair that doesn't look like your average, you know, quote unquote, normal white straight hair. There is an investment similarly to performing whiteness. I need you to receive me and see me and bestow upon me the value that you do to whiteness. So yes, I might have white skin, but my hair is a different texture. So I too am invested in straightening that hair so that I can be received similarly, right? Everyone on that spectrum is attempting to climb the ladder, if you will. Wow, yep. 
to gain yep. access to the privileges that come in white bodies. So colorism got her in, meaning she was light enough, mm-hmm. right? We've never seen her natural, pearly, kinky, biracial hair, if that's such a thing, right? We've seen pictures of what her hair looked like when she was a child. We've never seen that little coil since. So the investment in keeping that hair straight is also port part and parcel of how she's going to be received. So, okay, Harry, you want to marry, you know, someone of color, you've fallen in love with someone of color. She just enough. We, we can stomach this because her physicality is not a constant reminder to us that she is not white in the ways that mine would be mm-hmm. and run away from mine. Hers, you can make a choice about whether or not you see it or not. Possibly. But for some white people, it's still as glaring, right? It's still as glaring in their face as if she were my com- my complexion. So colorism got her in, meaning she was light enough, right? She was white embodied enough. You know, people call her white passing, I would say white presenting. Mm. Only works if nobody knows, right? Some of us can still see it, <laughs> right? So white presenting. White supremacy, however, says that we don't care how light you are. We saw your mama. We right. You, I mean, the UK headline straight out of Compton, all of these passive aggressive little jabs, calling her exotic and all of these things. Her blackness is glaring to them if the comparison mm-hmm. point is a European whiteness. So when it came down to when it came down to it, oh no. We know that you're black, so you're not going to get the same treatment, the same privileges, the same protection that you would have had you been, quote unquote, purely white. It's so, what is so, I guess, disturbing, but not, doesn't catch me off guard, but is disturbing, is how normalized we've allowed this to be, right? It is not a shock of what the UK would write and their tabloids do. They have been doing this for decades. Um, I spoke with a, um, a an author from the UK, uh, Georgina Lawson, who wrote the book Raceless about her own experience um, uh, coming, into, coming into her blackness after her family fairly much gaslighted her into believing that it was an accident, that she was like she was some genetic phenom uh, in some way that she that she looked different from everybody else in the family. And she said that her experience is that in the UK, they ignore race. There's no conversation. There's no, she's like, there's no readily um, uh, forced conversation around anti-blackness, around white supremacy, around these terms that people are still learning and wrapping their, their minds around. But here in the United States, it's something that is more in your face. I want to know your experience as you know, as a as a as a academic and a professor that travels that studies this, how anti blackness or the silence around it differs between what we experience in the United States and what we are, what we are seeing or learning show up in the UK as somebody from the outside looking in. Well, I haven't spent a lot of time in the UK. I haven't spent a lot of time in in Europe in general. 
Um, so I can really only speak from what I see projected, you know, yeah. European experiences. And again, in the same way that history is political, the media is political. And for those folks, you know, Americans as, as resourced as we are, as privileged as we are, I would argue that the average American does not leave this country. And if they do, they're yeah. going to, you know, the Caribbean or Mexico or some vacation uh, a, a spot. But like in terms of going to see how the rest of the world lives, I think we rely heavily on the media to show us the world, right? It's part of the access that we have through the media. And so think about it. How much Black lived experiences have you seen from Europe? This is why people were completely fascinated by Michaela Cole. Mm-hmm. It's why we're fascinated when we hear Idris speak naturally. Because mm-hmm. he spent so much time performing a Black American accent, right? Yes, he too has an accent. I, I went to Spain a couple of summers ago and I was absolutely clear that I was Black. People were staring at you. And it could have absolutely been where I traveled to, but you're very aware that you're not white in that space. Now, whether or not the conversations are happening in those spaces likely has to do with maybe the history of resistance in those spaces. Like we can't take for granted what the civil rights did for our voice, the civil rights movement in the in, in, in America, right? In the United mm-hmm. States did for our voice and our um ability to be speaking publicly and, and freely and, and calling racism out. Like that's not quote unquote normal in other spaces necessarily. But I also don't want to, because it's not my experience, I also don't want to disrespect the folks who live in those spaces and are likely doing the work, right? Right, right. I don't want to speak as if they're not doing anything. What I want to recognize is that what they are doing very strategically, we are not going to be made aware of. Right, right. There's a swell and a reason, right, for us to know about it. But like thinking of my experience in Spain, I always joke with my friends who are are from New York because they tend to call folks who are um, Latinx Spanish, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, y'all, Spain is in Europe. The Spaniards were colonists. They are white. And they see them and they see themselves as such. They yeah. are white. Spanish is a language, right? The reason why folks speak Spanish because they were colonized by the Spaniards, but Spanish is not quote unquote of color. I was very clear that I was in Europe when I was in Spain, right? But again, I think in terms of this this moment of of, of shock and curiosity and surprise has a lot to do with what we are not exposed to. It's it's, it's what we're not given access to in terms of like the lived experiences of black folks in Europe. Of course, there's racism there. Of course there is. Of course. Yeah. Because again, if we're talking about who, who are we putting the mic up to? Who are you asking? So like all of the whole week, all has it been a week, two weeks? It's, it's been two weeks now. What is time? Yeah. What is time? All of the conversations and all of this so-called surprise that we have is like, it's because we don't know anything. And mm. the thing that's most annoying to me is that 
white British folks have the audacity to be somehow offended, right? That somehow they're being mischaracterized, that somehow the UK is not a racist place. We're not asking you. Of course, can we talk to some black folks, please? Can we talk to some black folks in the UK? Let's ask them. You don't get to tell us whether right. you live as racist. Imagine if we asked the average American if the US was racist. Yeah, they would say no. They would, they would, I mean, we just, we just asked a white supremacist that went in and murdered eight people, six Asian people, whether or not he did it as an act of racism. And then we're going to take his word for it and run with that narrative. He had a bad day. He had a bad day. I, I have a lot of bad days. I don't kill anybody. He was taken without incident. Imagine if black folks had enough black days. Enough bad days, excuse me. <laughs> a bad day? A bad day. Yeah. Nobody's asking for your perspective because you're not in a position to tell us whether or not the space that we live in is racist. You're invested in it. You're sitting in it. How can you see it? Why is it up for discussion? Yeah, but how do you feel, how do you, right, in the work that you do, how do you stave off, or maybe you don't, the utter and complete exhaustion of, of working to educate, uplift, expand the perception of Blackness and how people show up in their anti-Blackness, in their racism, or don't like how, because I tell you that what I have learned over the past year, and I, I say this all the time on my show, that people need to take breaks. Otherwise they're going to have a breakdown that like, if you don't take a pause, the weight of all of this can really suffocate you. How do you, how, how do you work and, and, and navigate through and continue to show up with such a force and a fire? Um, I mean, sometimes you have to get knocked all the way down to be able to see the need for it, right? So I've def I mean, I've been doing this work for most of my career, most of my adult life. Um, so I've had <laughs> lots of experiences, you know, some awful ones at that. Some that have felt like they have absolutely broken me. But when I um, just accepted that white supremacy is not going anywhere, not in my lifetime, then I can pace myself, right? Mm. Then I recognize that, does that mean I give up? No, it means that I recognize that I'm chipping away at it. Do I have the expectation for it to go away? Of course not. Look how long it's been here. It's gonna be something that my great grandchildren and, and, and future generations have to address as well. I'm realistic in that way. So in so doing, I can pace myself, right? But also in the last few years, I've also become very deliberate about accessing joy. I mean, people use the language of balance. I don't know if it's balance. I just need some something else, <laughs> right? This cannot yeah. be everyday experience, right? Because what would I have to look forward to? What would be the point of living, mm. right? And joy is my birthright. And so, you know, when I think about the sheer magic 
that is Black existence. And I say magic because despite and perhaps because of everything that has been set up to destroy us, here we are. Not just living, not just surviving, not even just thriving, but we have the audacity to access joy, right? Black culture brings everyone joy. Who else could do it? Who else can do it? So as much as y'all want to talk about who we are and who we aren't, right? As much as we joke about white tears, the minute something goes wrong, you have a whole life breakdown and it's over. And here we are still entertaining your ass. Mm. And joking amongst ourselves, right? Thinking of the fact that our ancestors who were enslaved, our ancestors who were colonized, right? You want to talk about direct oppression, direct oppression and still created culture that we still benefit from today and still laughed and joked and sang songs and danced, you know? And so for me, it's so interesting when I, when I, when I you know, these kind of inside conversations that aren't so inside anymore, when, when black folks, you know, they walk in their respectability politics BS and, 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 you know, chastise us for doing certain things, you know, in public or in mixed company, or we shouldn't be acting like this way and we should only be, you don't know who your ancestors were. Respectability politics doesn't save us. It doesn't save us. We got a whole duchess in a whole palace. Doesn't save her. Mm. Doesn't save her. No. Is if it's not going to save us, and if it's not going to ultimately, in and of itself, dismantle white supremacy, damn it, I'm still going to experience joy. You're, you don't get to have the complete totality of my existence and my life. You're not going to have me feeling downtrodden every single day. Yes, this is the reality. And shit, if I'm still here, I'm going to enjoy myself in so doing. So I love it. Very deliberate. Yeah. Assessing joy, it's my birthright. You don't get to take that from me. And if I'm honest, a lot of ways, they don't expect us to experience joy. So experience they don't. Joy in your face. Yes. I fuck with you even more. Yeah. I came to that understanding late, but what I have realized and what I have learned over my years is nothing, nothing makes white supremacy angry, angrier than black joy. Nothing makes white racists angrier than like black people being unapologetically black and joyful and moisturized and glistening and just, you know, like nothing. If nanny nanny boo boo was a person, here we are. This is why I love, you know, Younger generations, I love Black creativity on social media, TikTok, Instagram, memes. I live for a good meme because the worst shit can happen to us and somebody is going to turn it into a meme. Now, older generations or perhaps more buttoned up and respectable folks might find that disrespectful. I understand where you're coming from. And still, we're yeah. going to make a meme out of your ugly ass, white supremacist murderer. It's going to be a meme about you. We're going to create a backstory. We're going to laugh. We're going to, we have to. How do we yes. make sense of this and keep moving? Karen, y'all mad about what we did to the word, to the name Karen? 
You'll be all right. And my thing is, if that is so disrupting to you, if that is the reason to have a whole identity crisis, this is why I say you couldn't be us. Us calling you a name is enough to break you. You couldn't be us. So yes, we're going to continue to laugh in your face because you don't get, this is what I'm saying. You don't get to have that level of power over our lives. Y'all have done a lot of shit. Y'all are controlling a lot of shit, but you don't get to take my access to joy from me. You can't have that. Our answers yeah. you, we won't let you. Yeah. I double down on it every day. Double down on that and rest. Because you're also not going to wear me out. No. But they do. They do. Dr. Yaba Blay, I, I cannot, you know, appreciate you enough. The work that you do, the voices that you lift up, the joy that you shine upon us with professional black girl and pretty period. The education and brilliance that you bring with your book, The One Drop, and just your continued body of work is is exemplary. And I and I thank you for making the time to join us today on Woke AF. For sure. Thank you for having me. Always. That is it for me today, folks, here on Woke AF. As always, power to the people and to all the people power. Get woke and stay woke as fuck. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information hey guys back at the playground again huh yep you know what this playground could use a wine country heck yeah and some waves so we could go surfing oh, yeah. <laughs> i love that a redwood forest would be cool i'm in ah ski slopes let's do it um tenor girl go shopping yeah, baby. wait did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand, it's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at zerofoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless.